At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today, we invite you to look deeper into 1 Peter, tuning into our current series, Unshakable, Steadfast Hope in an Unpredictable World. Join us as we allow God's Word to shape us and renew our hope with the brilliant truth of the gospel. Kids, the key question for you that I'm going to ask this morning after the service is, what are you building on? Are you building on sand or are you building on solid ground? Uh, and I, I hope that you'll have a good answer for me there after the service. I'd love to connect with you in that way. I'm glad that you're here with us today, ready to worship and to open up God's Word. If you have your Bible, let me encourage you to open it up to, uh, to 1 Peter chapter 2, where we're at in our uh, series called Unshaken this morning. Unshakable. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. Uh, that's where we'll be in God's word together. And I'd love it if you'd take your Bible and if you'd stand with me, let me read this text for us and uh, we'll come to the Lord together as a church family this morning. First Peter chapter two, beginning at verse four. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house are being built to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So honor will come to you who believe. But for the unbelieving, the stone that the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone. And a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over. They stumble because they disobey the word. They were destined for this. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you that in Christ we have an unshakable foundation, a sure hope. And this morning, Lord, I would pray and ask that as you uh, teach us your word, as your spirit works among us, that he would work with power and that he would work with clarity. Bring your word to bear directly where we need you the most today. And help us, Father. Give us open hearts, humble us. Make us so that we don't turn away from Christ, that we don't reject him, but cause our minds and our hearts and our attitudes to be believing and to receive him so that we might honor you. Thank you for your grace and thank you for this word. Teach us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen, we ask. Amen. Be seated. I kind of feel like the building is going to tip this way, just by the way you guys are spread out this morning. It's okay, it'll work out. Uh, we're glad you're here today. Well, as I would ask the kids this morning the question, I want to ask you as well, mom and dad, adults, everyone who's here today, I want to ask you this question, are you building your life correctly? Are you building your life correctly? Or is the shape of your life, the building of your life, is it, is it misaligned? Is it, is it broken? Is it somehow being misconstructed in some way or another? And I'm going to lay out all of my building experience for you this morning. I have a vast resume of building uh, pedigree. I know all about it. Actually, I know very, very little about building anything except for Lego sets. And so that's where I'm just going to lean in today because that's where my expert, an area of expertise is uh, for me and our, our family. I, I love Legos and, and and really, I love them because the kids love them. They enjoy them. We've got Legos all over the place. Uh, you know those Legos are those little building block sets, which are just small pieces that you can build up into these uh, ornate, fancy, cool, uh, whatever they might be, sorts of models or, or displays. I think the genius of Legos are that they give you options. 
You can follow the instructions with a set of Legos that you get. You, you get the map and the roadmap out, and you can piece together these intricate sets with all these small pieces or larger pieces. And you can be really creative in that and build what the instructions have laid out. Or you can chuck the directions all together, and you can engage your own imagination and your own creativity and build whatever you'd like. The, the possibilities are endless. The quality of what you built is built on two things. It's either built on your creativity level and your, your ability to architect and assemble and develop something pretty complex, or it's the, the quality of what you build is based on the degree to which you follow the instructions. It, it really goes in one of two ways. Uh, this last spring, our kids received a pretty amazing set that, that had some very intricate parts to it. It had some gears and some, some motors and some ways that it would move. The whole thing, if it was built properly, would, would, uh, it was a remote control, really. It would run around the house. It could do all sorts of lifting and building. It was a crane. If they got one bit of the directions wrong, though, if they put a piece in the wrong spot, or if they misaligned a gear in the motor uh, assembly of it all, uh, it would spin, but it wouldn't function properly. It wouldn't do what it was intended for. And that metaphor really stands out, this building metaphor, it really stands out because that's what Peter is trying to jog our imagination into thinking. What are we building our life upon? Who are we building our life upon? And maybe the question I would ask is, is your life being built the wrong way? Are you building incorrectly? The shape and the form and the framework of all of your life, is it being built in a misdirected way? I think a problem with our particular blend of Christianity and American life right now is that we want Jesus in our lives, we want Christ in our lives, but we really only want Christ in our lives when he's on our terms, when he, when he fits with our engagement with him, when he fits on the way we have designed or thought of life. I think the fundamental issue and the problem that we face today is that we are too enamored with putting Christ into the structure of our lives. We're okay with that rather than building the whole of our lives on Christ. We're finding places to put Jesus in, but we're not taking down the whole of our lives in order to build upon Christ himself. And I want to address that problem this morning. I think that's where Peter takes us to in, in where we're at here in 1 Peter chapter 2 in this series called Unshakable. Because we find ourselves in the midst of lives and in the midst of a culture and in the midst of a time where things all seem to be falling apart. They all seem shaken. There, there seems to be little firm footing in our lives. And, and that might be because we have been building incorrectly. We've got the, the brick, if you will, the Lego brick that says Jesus somewhere in the structure of what we've built, but he isn't in the right place. And so because of that, much of what we're building in our lives today feels threatened and it can fall apart and it's, it's very, very precarious. I want to address the problems that Peter addresses here in this text, two problems that I see this morning with how we are building. The first problem deals with how we are building, or I'm sorry, what we are building what our lives are shaping up to be. And the second problem that Peter addresses is the problem of how we are building or where that all comes from. And I want to address these two problems as Peter directs us to this morning. So look with me at verses 4 through 8, just these four simple and yet profound verses about how he talks to us about the building of our lives. The first problem that I want to address and deal with is the problem that our building 
is the wrong building. Perhaps we're building the wrong house, if I could put it that way. We like to conceive of ourselves as the architect of our lives, right? We have the purpose. We have the design. We are the ones who are shaping and forming and framing the direction and trajectory of our lives and what all of our lives are going to be about. And as the architects of our lives, we love the control that it has. And yet, we need to have a fundamental shift in our understanding of who we are in the universe. You see, when we try and build our lives as the architect, we're fundamentally building in the wrong way. And that's how we view Jesus. Many of us see Jesus as one stone in order to be brought into the whole framework of our houses, in the whole framework of our lives. He's, he's one piece that really makes the whole thing complete. So we would say Jesus is important. Jesus is worthy. We would say as Christians, Jesus is valuable. But he's perhaps maybe just one piece. And yeah, we would say he's a larger piece. We couldn't do without him. But he's just one piece in the whole substructure of it all. He just fits in one particular place. But I would ask, is that, is that the right perspective? That Jesus kind of fits where we can place him and where we want him to be rather than who he truly is? And so Peter helps us to think about Christ. He helps us to see who Jesus is. And this is what he says in verse 4. He says, as you come to him. Is that how we're coming this morning? This is an invitation in. Here, as you, as you come to Jesus, as you see who he is, the posture of your life and the, and the framework of how you're building, it all comes into view. Last week we saw in chapter 2, Peter talks about ridding ourselves of all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and like newborn infants desiring the pure milk of the word so that we grow up into salvation. And then he drops us in there. He says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Peter is assuming the best of us. He's assuming and saying, yes, I do believe you've tasted that the Lord is good. So as you come to him, as you come to Christ as the one who is good, there needs to be a fundamental reshaping of how your life is built. There might be some demolition work that needs to happen. You might need to tear down the structure, so to speak, and rebuild in a new and a different way. So as you come to him, see him as a living stone. This is how Peter starts to talk about Christ. Jesus, this living stone. And that's a curious way to talk about Jesus there to begin with. And yet it's been a metaphor that has ran through the entirety of Peter's life. Peter, you remember, was named Simon. And when Jesus first met him, Jesus renamed him. He reframed his entire life. He says, no, I'm not going to call you Simon anymore. No longer will you be called Simon, but you are Peter. Rock. Upon this rock, I'll build my church. He renamed and re-identified Peter. And so Peter has had this metaphor with Christ of the rock all throughout his life. And now he comes and he talks about Jesus who is the living stone, the living rock, the one whose life, Peter says, must be built upon. To use the term here, living stone, it, it kind of wakens us a little bit. Like rocks aren't living. Stones don't have breath. They're inert. They're lifeless. They just kind of sit there and... They don't do anything unless they're organized and ordered in order to be a structure, but, but stones have no life in them. And yet, Peter says, here's this living stone. Peter here loves this idea of things being living in this letter. He talks about earlier in chapter 1 that we have been born again into a living hope. Our hope is not dead, it's alive. That we have here in front of us the living, verse 23 of chapter 1, we have been born again through the living word of God. 
And now he speaks of Christ as a living stone. Peter's really getting it into our hearts that Christianity, it's not just some sort of doctrinal treatise that sits in books on library shelves and something that's just out there, but it's a living, vibrant reality. It's a personal reality that Christ himself is living. He is vibrant. He is at work among us. We aren't just worshiping some dead men. We're not just uh, adoring some historical stories that belong in dusty books, that we have a living and vibrant king, King Jesus, over us. As we come to him, we come not to a dead truth, but to a living person, to the living Christ himself. And so as you come to him, a living, st- a living stone, we have to see the reality of where he's fit in the world. And Peter frames it out in two ways. The way he's fit in the world is, is one of this. Either it's been that he's been rejected by people or he's been exalted by God. This is the, the spectrum that he puts it on. As you come to him, this living stone, realize that Christ has been rejected by humanity. He's been rejected by people. Universally, every one of us have turned away at Christ. We, we have rejected him. We, we've disavowed him. We've displaced him from our lives. We've rebelled against him. And yet, God has exalted and honored him. You see, there's a fundamental difference in the way that Christ is perceived in the world today. For humanity, it's rejection. He's regarded as not worthy. The idea of their being rejected means he just kind of set aside, ignored, not taken up. My kids are building a Lego set. I'm sorry, if I'm building a Lego set, we do it together. There's this set that comes with all these pieces. And within that set, there's inevitably pieces that are extra or left over. They're the inconsequential pieces. They're never the essential pieces. They're the stuff like the little flowers that you can put on the side of the house or just the little tiny bits that you may lose and you'll need a couple extra of. Many of us view Christ that way. He's in the bag, he's part of the set, but he's just a leftover. He's just an extra. And this is a view of how we reject Christ. We don't see him as essential to our lives. We don't even see him as exalted in our lives. We just see him as someone who's in the bag with us a tool that can be used, a resource that might be helpful for us. And this is fundamentally what Peter says is our rejection of Jesus, our holding him at arm's length. We make Christ ignorable, inconsequential, disposable. Is that who Jesus is for you? Is Jesus just one piece in the set that he can be a part of it or not? It doesn't matter. It might make the set look bigger, better, but it doesn't really make it stand up any more uniquely than what you've already built. You can see him that way, but you can see him the way God has seen him. Rejected by people, rejected by humanity, but Christ, the living stone, God sees as chosen and honored. This idea of chosen and honored here, Peter will pick up that from a passage of Scripture in Isaiah in verse 6 that we'll see in just a moment. But he sees God, the Father, sees the Son as this one who is to be elevated, this one who is to be exalted. The Father sees the Son as one of inestimable worth, that Christ is priceless, that he is, uh, maybe as your translation says, precious. He is valued and esteemed. The Father has always delighted in and treasured and exalted and enjoyed the Son eternally. And that's how, that's how Jesus is to be seen. 
As you come to him, this living stone, you have a choice to make. Do you reject him? Is he just an extra bit in the bag? Or is he to be honored and precious and exalted? What do you do with Jesus? The Father holds the Son in highest esteem. And we might ask the question, well, why is that the case? Why is that true? Verse 6 shows us that. For it stands in Scripture. So Peter goes back to the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah. And he quotes him and he says, See, I lay, in, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Now here's God who's speaking to his people through Isaiah. These people who have begun to repent of their false idols and false gods and their false ways of building their own lives, even though everything in their lives is falling around them, even though Judah is facing exile, God speaks to them and says, I see your repentance and I see what your, your heart posture and I see you're coming to me and know that I've laid a stone in Zion, a living stone. Chosen, an honored stone, a precious stone, a cornerstone. And that term cornerstone is very specific and particular about how we view Christ. You see, for many of us, we might view Christ as an extra to be in our lives. A painting to hang on the wall, a coat of paint to make a room look special, a chair that makes it just match and fit. When in fact, Christ as God sees him, as we should have him, plays the place of the cornerstone. Well, what is a cornerstone? That, that's not something that we definitely understand or, or uh, utilize much today. But the ancient world, the cornerstone was the most important, the most foundational part of the building. Everything within the building rested upon and depended upon the right placement and the right quality of that stone itself. Tim Keller points out that the cornerstone had three dynamics to it. One, it had to be a perfect stone. Straight lines, exact, cut and measured specifically. Because every other stone in the building would build off of this one particular stone. If you had a stone that had wrong lines, if it wasn't cut exactly and precisely, the rest of your building would be out of shape. Not only that, it had to be the strongest stone. The cornerstone bore the weight of the structure in many ways. If the stone itself, if the cornerstone was weak, the, the building would fall. It would lack integrity. The whole structure would be an under threat of coming under. But if it was a strong stone, if it was a quality stone, it could bear the weight, help the building stand up tall and firm. And furthermore, thirdly, it had to be the first stone. The cornerstone was the one that was cut first and set first. No other stone was picked up or laid out until the cornerstone had been laid. It occupied the most important position in the whole structure. So being the perfect, strongest, and first stone made that cornerstone the most precious and valuable stone. No other stones like it. I'll quote Keller here. He says, Therefore, literally, the cornerstone was the most precious of the stones. It was the most precious because literally it was the most expensive. It was the most labor-intensive. It was not unusual for a builder to spend as much time finding the cornerstone, quarrying the right kind of stone, and cutting the stone as it would the whole of the rest of the building. 
Peter says, this is who Christ is. In the grand scope of the universe, see, I have laid a stone in Zion, a chosen, an honored, a precious cornerstone. And he invites us. He says, as you come to him, how do you see him? One brick in the little Lego hut of your life that you're building? Or is he the most precious, the most valuable, the most foundational, the foremost cornerstone of your whole life? And Peter invites us into that. He says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This is the beautiful good news of how we are to approach Christ. As we come to him, whoever believes in him will never be put to shame. So what the scripture is saying here is the person who builds their life on the cornerstone of Christ, they will eternally be secure. They will eternally never be forsaken. They will eternally not be put to shame and think, I built on the wrong foundation. I built the wrong structure. But the one who builds their life on the cornerstone of Christ They will not be put to shame. So what's your perspective of Christ? Let me ask you that. Because I think the problem is that we are building the wrong structures. As you come to him, where do you have him in your life? Where do you have him in your home? Where do you have him in the shape of your life? Jesus is not content just to hold up a picture that has you on it over your life. He's not content to just adorn a room in your heart and be disconnected from the rest of your life. He's not content just to be the roof over your little structure of life so that when it rains or when hardship comes, you've got something to protect you. Christ must be the cornerstone of all of your life, or he won't have any place in your life at all. How do you come to him? How do you see him? If our problem is that we've been building the wrong structure, Peter here invites us then, the remedy for that is to recognize our place in the house of God. Where does he fit? What does that mean for us? Notice here how Peter talks about this in verse 5. He says, as you come to him, a living stone, rejected by people but honored and chosen by God, as you come to him, Peter is believing that we are believing Christ, that we are coming to him as the cornerstone. It fundamentally changes who we are. You yourselves are living stones, Scripture says. You yourselves as living stones are a spiritual house and you are being built to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You see, the fundamental reality is that as we come to Jesus, we can either reject him and try and build our own structures and maybe place him in somewhere else, or we can reject the structures that we have been building and say, I want to be a part of the household of God. That's the structure that he is building. The foundation, the cornerstone is Christ. And so he calls us into being built into God's house. Our place is as structures, as people in his home. So he calls us living stones as well. We bear a resemblance to the one who has transformed our lives. Christ is a living stone, the living stone. We, as God's people, are living stones as well. We bear his mark. We display his image. And so it's a good place to ask, does my life, does your life look like Christ? Does your interaction with the world, in your work, in your leisure, in your neighboring, in your life, in your social media, do people look at you and say, wow, I see Christ there? Do the way we treat others display 
Christ-likeness? Or are we building our lives on our own? We, as living stones here, we bear his image in the world. We're a spiritual house. Peter here is showing that the temple is done away with, but now the church, God's people, are God's temple. He exists and dwells among us as his people, the spiritual house, and we are being built to be a holy priesthood. Now we have a new role. No longer wandering about the world, doing whatever we'd like, but we have been transformed by God's grace to be a priesthood unto him. Now this again refers to the realities of what was happening in the Old Testament scriptures, but deep nonetheless, this holy priesthood reminds us that we are for God's purposes. The priesthood, the Old Testament, they were the lead worshipers. They were the ones who had access to the very holy places of God, and that's who we are today to be lead worshipers in our own lives every moment, our working, our waking, our sleeping, our leisure, our play, all of it is for the glory of God. Our eating and drinking, all that we are and do is to the glory of God. Furthermore, the priesthood had no permanent inheritance themselves as Israel entered the land and the land was divvied up. The priesthood didn't inherit a plot of land. The purpose for that was because God was their inheritance. And so we as a holy priesthood We have no inheritance here on this earth. We have no land that is ours. God is our inheritance. This world is not our own. Our stuff is not our own. It belongs to him as a royal priesthood unto him. And we have a new role, a new purpose, a new function to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The aim and the trajectory of our lives being built into the house that God is building is to worship and exalt and give him all of ourselves forever and ever and ever for the glory of God. It's to live for his pleasure and his joy, to make much of him. God's not interested in the structures of our own lives that we are building. He wants us to be a part of the building that he is developing to the glory of his son, to lift up the name of Jesus. And so that's why Jesus calls to us and says, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would follow me, he must deny himself. Take up your cross and come and follow me. You might say, this is is really a not fun sort of way of life, isn't it? But Jesus calls us and he says, whoever would follow me, know that I know your burdens are heavy. I know your weight is tough, but come to me. I'll take that heavy burden I'll take it and lift it and I'll give you a yoke that is easy. Christ invites us to him to find life, not death. So we die to ourselves. We lift up and give spiritual sacrifices. This is exactly what Paul said in Romans chapter 12. He said, therefore, by the mercies of God, present yourself as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to him. This is the spiritual act of worship. All of our lives is worship unto the Lord. So what are we building with our lives? Sam Storms states it this way. He says, perhaps the most important task of the church, God's temple, is to prize Jesus as precious so that all the world may see him as such. Are you building the wrong structure? Are you building your own life, your own little kingdom, your own little thing? You've got the set of your life and you just chuck whatever God's given to you as way of instruction and said, no, I'm, I'm going to build myself. If you've come to Christ, we need to see that we are part of his temple, his building. 
And he is the cornerstone. We exist to make much of him. All of our life should be built off the lines of who he is and his greatness. So our first problem is we're building the wrong building. And the remedy is to recognize our place in the house of God. But that leads us to our second problem that verse 7 and 8 address. The second problem is we don't like the first issue. We don't like the first remedy. You and I want to be the center of the universe. Isn't that true? At least our own little universes. I mean, we know that there's a lot of, there's like 7 billion people in the world, and we know that we're not all there. We can't be the top over all 7 billion, but we want to at least be the center of the life that we've got going on, the thing that we have in front of us. We want to be the one to build our own legacies and our own houses and to have control and to make much of ourselves. We want the narrative of the history of the world to be about us. We want to be the center. Maybe if I could use the metaphor this way, we want to be actors on the stage, but we want Christ to be the supporting actor in our story. And it's okay if he wins that Oscar for best supporting actor, just so long as we win the Oscar for best actor or actress in our own lives. So the problem is we don't believe the scriptures. We don't believe what God has said. We distance ourselves from Jesus you see, for many of us, the idea of belief or faith has become sort of some sort of mental intellectual exercise. We have boiled down faith to this component. It means, what we think anyway, is that we have some sort of contract with God, where faith means that I will say that whatever you say in this book is historically true, that it's accurate, that it happened, and by saying that it's true, that means that God is obligated to keep me out of hell. So yes, I'll believe intellectually, mentally, there was a guy named Jesus. He may have been born from a virgin or not, but I'll say yes because that's what I'm told to say, and that he lived on this earth and taught some people and walked around and did some miracle stuff because that's what I'm told to say, and then he died, and then people say he rose again, and so I'll just affirm that too, so I cover all my bases, and therefore I have faith, or therefore I believe because I mentally agree to all those things. And because I have that kind of faith, well, God's not obligated to keep me out of hell. I'm not sure I believe in it either, but hey, there it is. I've got to believe that box too, right? That's what we boil faith down to, just from sort of checking the boxes. We, we think faith in Jesus is the same as faith in George Washington or faith in Alexander Hamilton or uh, Abraham Lincoln, whoever you might pick as a historical figure. But that's not what faith is at all. True faith, true belief is banking our life on the reality of that being true. It's, it's believing to seek a reward. This is the way that the writer of Hebrews puts it in Hebrews 11, verse 6. He says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to him must believe that he exists. So there is the intellectual component of it. He, I must believe that God is there, that he exists, and that God rewards those who seek him. That there is a, a prize, that there is a reward, there is a true hope that we have. True faith is banking itself completely on one Savior. And that's why he says in verse 7, So the honor will come to you who believe. The reward is there for you who believe who bank all of your life in Christ, who build your life on the cornerstone of Jesus. Not have him as a supplement, not make him the roof over your shelter, but who build your life as the cornerstone, from the cornerstone of Christ, the honor will come to you who believe. 
God's holding out the reward. He's holding out the prize of trusting Christ. It's Christ himself. You might say, well, that sounds really risky. I don't want to put all my eggs in that basket. Like, let me have a little Jesus, a little karma, a little, just a little good deeds, a good works out there, and I think I'll get home fine. I'll diversify my spir- spiritual portfolio. It's too risky to just put it all in on Christ. I like how Charles Spurgeon says it. He says, to risk all with Jesus is to end all risk. And there it is for us. So here's our problem. We want enough of Jesus to make us feel good and to affirm what we affirm, but not too much of him to reorient or reframe our lives. And it boils down to this. We fundamentally don't believe. And that's what Peter says at the end of verse 7. The honor will come to you who believe, but for the unbelieving. Here's where they stand. For those who just try and hedge their bets with Jesus. Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected. He's the extra parts in the bag that we just kind of left aside. So we really don't need that. The stone that the builders rejected, but this one has become the cornerstone. And he is a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over. And they stumble because they disobey the word. Here's the results that Peter identifies. He's quoting the Psalms here, Psalm 118. For the unbelieving, for those who don't bank their life on Christ, that same stone, and Peter says this one, that one, that cornerstone, they trip over. They fall flat on their faces over him. Peter here emphasizes Christ as the cornerstone one more time. And he's saying, it's not that you reject Christian doctrine. It's not that you reject Christian practice. It's not that you reject the church as it all is. You're rejecting Christ. The stone that the builders rejected, that one, Jesus, that one has become the cornerstone. From him, the whole structure is built and it grows. But you've rejected him. And so he's become, verse 8, a stone to stumble over, a rock to trip over. That cornerstone you fall flat on your face on as you walk over him. Here, Peter's just identifying the way that unbelievers, we, we reject Christ and we don't treat him. He just gets in our way. We trip over him. Literally, the phrase there at the end of verse 8, there, or the, the phrase there in the quotation of verse 8, a rock to trip over, in, 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 the Greek word there develops our English word Scandal. Jesus becomes a scandal to us. That's how we trip over Jesus. You might see Jesus as a nice person, a good moral teacher, a philosopher that can help you live life. You might want to have him adorn the house of your life well, be that painting on the wall, be that comfort to you, that warm, cozy blanket that helps you feel better when you're feeling bad. But you don't want Jesus to be the center and the foundation of your life. And so when he calls for that in your life, you stumble him over him. You trip over him. He's scandalous to you. Jesus is going to cause you to stumble because he's not interested in building the little hut Lego sets of your life. He's not interested in building just these small little personal kingdoms where he's a bit player in it. He is drawing you to come to him so that he can make you part of his glorious and eternal temple and family, the house of God. That might not be what you're interested in. So you're ready to stumble over him. Scandalous to you. If you don't believe, here's the remedy. Jesus is a stumbling stone to you. What is the remedy for that? 
don't stumble over the word of God. Don't stumble over the word of God. Listen carefully. Consider deeply and obey. Here's what he says at the end of verse 8. This one, this cornerstone that the builders have rejected, has become a stumbling stone, a scandal among us. Peter says they stumble because they disobey the word. We're destined for this. They stumble because they disobey the word. What does the word say to us? Come to Christ. The word says that everyone who believes in him, the one who believes in him, will not be put to shame. Everyone who believes in him will have life. He will turn away no one. So come to Jesus. The word says to build your life on Christ. The word says to repent of your sin, to turn from it and embrace Christ by faith alone and him alone. The word says come to him. You say, what is this word? What is this word that I'm in danger of disobeying? Well, the word here has two senses to it. One, the word is the scripture itself, the inspired word of God. All scripture is God-breathed and useful to teach us, to correct us, to rebuke us, and to train us in righteousness. So if you're not listening to Jesus, if you're stumbling over who he is, it could be because you're stumbling over the word. You're disobeying the scripture itself. How true that is for us, that scripture shows us who we are to be. Many people don't like scripture because it calls for us to correct ourselves, to be changed, to be new people. Oh, 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 we like the parts of the Bible that affirm what we believe. We like the parts of the Bible that are easy for us to accept. But when the Bible says something like, love your neighbors, no, no, love your enemies, oh, that's where we want to tear out the page and say, well, that doesn't apply to me, that's not for me, and yet we disobey the word. We stumble over Jesus because he's reorienting our lives and how we should live. Don't stumble over the word. The word here for more fully isn't just the scriptures themselves. Peter is speaking about the word incarnate. Who is the word incarnate? It's Christ. That's what John said in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The word is Christ. And so when we reject Christ, when we stumble over him, when we disobey him, we just show we've rejected him. We don't believe. Our faith isn't there. Consider who this Christ is. Christ has come and proclaimed good news to us. He said the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Do you obey his word? Do you obey him, the word? Christ, who is the living stone, who came and laid down his life for our sins, who took our penalty, our disease, our rebellion, and our cross, and died in our place. He says, come and follow me. Believe in me. Do we believe in him? Or do we stumble over him and disobey the word? Jesus Christ, who was raised to life again on the third day, so that all who bank their life on him... All who believe and trust in him exclusively will never be put to shame. Do we believe in him and trust in him exclusively? Do we lay down him as the foundation, cornerstone of our life? Or do we disobey the word and reject him? Jesus, who said to his followers, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and come and follow me. Do we disobey the word? Because it's scandalous to us? That can't be what he meant. He's not talking to me. It doesn't apply in this situation. Christ just said, come to me, all you who are weary 
and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Do we trip over that because we believe other sources of rest are out there that are better, that are other sources of refreshment and renewal and life? And so do we trip over Christ and disobey his word to come to him so that we can find other wells that are empty and no good at all? Here's the point. When Christ is not the cornerstone of your life, when he's maybe a supplement or an add-on or maybe some of those Lego sets have like some really cool bricks that do some amazing things. Like one, Allison got a set this weekend that lights up. The brick lights up. We might think of Jesus like that. When he's not the cornerstone, when he's an add-on or maybe a little brick that lights up our little house, then he has not been obeyed. We stumbled over the word and we disobey. And it brings scandal and offense. So I'll quote Sam Storms one more time. If one finds Jesus precious and thus responds in faith, he is the cornerstone upon which a person builds his life in community now and is the rock on which that person will stand without shame or disappointment in the ages to come. But if one finds Christ to be offensive and unappealing and responds to him in disobedience and unbelief, Jesus is the stone over which such a person will stumble and fall both now and forever. They were destined for this. But what about you? What about you? Will you believe? And this is the invitation of this whole passage. I'll go back to verse 4. As you come to him, see him with clarity. See him as the living stone. See him as the cornerstone for your life. As you come to him, believe, reject all other sources of hope, reject all other sources of life, reject all building plans that you may have. As you come to him, come to him as the cornerstone and let him build your life. Don't stumble over the word of God, but obey and believe and trust Christ. So friends, this morning, let me ask again, what life are you building? Are you building correctly? Are you building the life that has you at the center? You're the cornerstone. You're the most important object in your life. It's not a life you're going to want. Are you building a life, let me say it this way, are you letting God build a life for you on Christ the cornerstone? which you are part of his glorious home, his new temple, as a priest unto him. Here's the bottom line. Build your life on the cornerstone of Christ. Let's turn from all other sources, turn from all other building plans, stop hedging our bets, and come to him. As you come to him, the living stone, the cornerstone, know he is exalted, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we thank you for Christ, the stone who is exalted, precious, and honored. We thank you that you have rescued us from our rejection, that you have redeemed us from our disobedience, that you have given us Christ, the cornerstone, who laid down his life for us, that we might be built into your, your home, your temple, to be a people for you, for the praise of your name. So Lord, this morning, 
where we have seen our own rejection and our own disobedience. We pray that we would tear down those walls and that Christ would be the cornerstone of our lives. Build us up in him. Glorify your name. Give us great hope, we pray in Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.